Welcome to the Piano Whisperer Podcast. So we went back there and both started jamming out on the same piano together. And I pull out a wow. harmonica at some point and start playing. So it's this little jam session going on in the back of the restaurant. How uh, fun the, is the that? The piano's in the back for people waiting for their tables. That was the setup of the old Irene's restaurant. So you're jamming with Harry Connick in the back of the restaurant? Do oh, I yeah. that right? Yeah, in the, wow. in the little side room where you can get cocktails while you're waiting for your table. <laughs> and was he was he a kind guy? Was yeah, he nice he's just super chill. He's like super chill down to earth. And, and like I said, we went back to his table afterwards and just chilled. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for joining us for Piano Whisperer. With me today is pianist, singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, Mac Potts. Mac Potts has been stunning crowds in Portland, Oregon, since he began his professional career as an entertainer at 11 years old. Born totally blind, Mac began to tickle the ivories at 18 months old. A prodigy, he studied the piano classically until he discovered rock and roll and began picking up the blues on piano and saxophone with some coaching from local artists. He soon began playing in blues festivals across the Pacific Northwest, Cincinnati, and Memphis, performing solo, duo, with blues bands, and with local and national artists. Inspired as a young teen, Mac began traveling to New Orleans for the famed Jazz and Heritage Festival, where he began to share the stage with Harry Connick Jr., Dr. John, Marsha Ball, and many more. He returns to New Orleans every year to headline at iconic restaurants and jam in clubs until dawn. His travels down south inspired his album, Crescent City Dreams. At 16 years old, Mac discovered his soulful voice and found his niche as a cover artist. Since then, he has played several concert halls and countless venues around the United States. His entertaining, high-energy, and engaging performances leave his audiences dazzled wherever he goes. In addition to his music, Mac was discovered in 2016 by Cut Media, and has since been casted as himself in various unscripted viral videos, including Kids Describe Colors to a Blind Person, which has gained millions of views on YouTube and Facebook. Mac is the owner of Black and White Piano Tuning in Southwest Washington, where he lives with his wife, Haley Potts, who herself is a piano teacher, composer, and fellow artist. Together, they had their first child in September 2018. Mac, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Super. I'm, I'm super happy to be part of this it sounds like it's going to be awesome <laughs> with you i think it will be with me well we'll see but um it said in your bio that you began to tickle the ivories at 18 months old or thereabouts so what were you doing at that time and how did that happen i don't remember any of it um if i'm being honest <laughs> That's fair. I, I really don't uh but apparently i would stories that i've heard i would go up to the piano and play like one note versions of nursery rhymes so I, for some reason we play it in in rhythm but one yep. note and then yep. it moved on to being actual songs and then like i started apparently playing with intervals i do remember this i would go up the piano in chromatic scales uh with one finger on the, a white key and another on a black key and, and different combinations of intervals to see where they would go and where it would land and and i even remember them like the sequences that i used to do I don't know why I did it, but it was just something I did. Sure. It definitely was was experimenting with a lot of stuff. By the time I was at least four or five, I remember all that. Sure. Now, you have perfect pitch, which is, to me, just a profound gift. And so did you have little songs in your head that you could just find the keys easily enough? Is that how that manifested in you? Yeah, I I could take a, any nursery rhyme from a toy or any you know kids tape song and and figure out how to play the melody and maybe some basic left hand stuff with what little knowledge I had. I, I could I could make something happen from not nothing because it was someone else's work, but I could I could make something out of just yeah, using my brain. Yeah, in your head, yeah. So now prof your professional career began at about eleven years old. And what kinds of music were you playing and where were you playing? Lions clubs and rotary elks. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> ladies functions lunches retirement homes just like little community service yeah sure things. uh the reason why i say professional is because i actually did start having little 25 dollar checks handed in nice. or 
you know, someone would hand me a $20 tip or a $50 tip or whatever. I'd get these little tokens and I could go buy ice cream with them or do whatever. I was actually saving my money by then. I started saving money. So I would maybe take out a little portion to do something I wanted and then save the rest. I was actually already saving money by then. And it it was this, the repertoire was whatever book I was going through, usually Suzuki book, and then church hymns and silly little ragtime pieces from toys that I would like embellish on and make them a little more sophisticated. And also like American classics as in like patriotic songs. A lot of times those were relevant at these events I was Mm -hmm. doing. So I knew all those. Sure. And then rock and And roll. Well, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. So does music run in your family? Were your parents surprised by your talent? Um, I think they were surprised at how young I started and just how natural it was for me. With everyone else, it was kind of like, well, we'll, we'll get you into dance. I had two sisters, so let's, let's, we'll get you into dance. And, and they eventually would express interest in violin or flute or guitar, and they would kind of roll with that and see what worked. And usually this stuck with a lot of things for a bit. The only thing that really stuck is the dancing lasted all the way. They, they danced all the way through school and, and beyond. They both still can dance a little. And, but uh, as far as my brothers were concerned and myself, I, I, my younger brother, I think, still plays a little guitar, but I'm really the only one making a living doing this. Uh, it's, it's really only me. My dad plays for joy. My mom has rhythm, but never really learned how to play an instrument. But she could, she could have played the drums if she wanted to, but she, she never yeah, did. Yeah. So that profound nature of the gift was, it was just kind of appeared on the scene of the Potts household, it seems like. Yeah, for the most part, it, music is in my relatives. Yeah. I mean, they all had pianos. They all played a little bit. So it it's in the genes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I got I'm I rolled. I rolled. Yeah, yeah. And so you studied classical very early on, and you mentioned the Suzuki method. Um, tell us about your early teacher and how you were taught. Hmm. Well, kind of unique experience because my dad was able to to coach me enough, even with me having a classical teacher, he was able to to learn my pieces at least in the first three books and and show me the fingerings some sort of hand over hand usually and and kind of help me with that because a lot of times it showed the finger numbers in the book and so he would sometimes even sing the finger numbers while he was playing okay. it was really cute but uh <laughs> just out of habit i mean that's just natural but a lot of times i would go to my teacher with the piece already memorized so at that point, she would just be coaching me. It was more, my teachers have always acted more as coaches because I would learn as much of it either with his help or by ear as I could. Later on, my second teacher actually started teaching me, having to teach me in like bar by bar, but I still would take some of it and try to pick it up by ear. It was getting harder though later on in the books, um, which is probably why I'm not a master classical player because it's way too hard to pick up by ear even with my ears sure the you know my advanced pieces were not that advanced it we're we're talking moonlight sonata rondo a la turk for elise some haydn sonatas that they, they those books liked those for some reason um the sonata in c by mozart the famous you know a bait there's a couple of famous beethoven pieces but really nothing elaborate, not even fantasy impromptu. I, I never got to that level, even with all my training, because the Suzuki method is is kind of slow. And it's really meant for people who, it's meant for learning by ear at first. And most people who go with the Suzuki method either find a higher level thing sooner than I did, or they do what I did and kind of roll with something else. They become a, a gospel, pian- a church pianist or ragtime or jazz or something like that they kind of don't really stick with the classical because the suzuki books don't really advance you that far i see but i think when people are listening and they're saying a book hmm, how does that work so was your i guess would get the melody in your head right and that would sort of lead the way is that how it happened or did your dad okay well both um when i was little my dad would literally show me the notes to play but i would also listen to (laughs) this is a throwback i had cassettes and then later cds oh yeah uh, now it's all YouTube. You can find it all on YouTube or DVDs or these packages from like actual Suzuki programs. But I would listen to it, get as much of it in my head as possible, and then take that to the teacher. And sometimes I'd have a wrong note and they'd fix it. Um, she might coach me on fingerings and whatnot and dynamics that 
might not have been interpreted right by the recording because some of the recordings weren't very musically colorful. They were kind of just, these are the notes, which is fine, but a lot of them play also played them too fast. So we had to find the ones that worked. And I naturally played the pieces slower than what might have been intended just because I thought, no, there's no rush. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm taking more of a, a natural musical approach to it. And we all internalize it differently too, you know. So you got turned on to rock and roll fairly early. And how did that happen? And what bands were most interesting to you and, and why? That's a good question. It's it's hard to say. I grew up with radio being played on the bus and it was usually soft rock radio, uh, which back then it's changed over time, but soft rock was qualified as cheesy seventies rock ballad, you know, soft rock love songs, ballads like bread and Oh yeah. <laughs> and you know, Billy Joel, yep. mellow oh, yeah. Billy Joel and sure. and all, all that stuff all the way into the eighties and the nineties and even two thousands, like Celine Dion and all the backstreet boys and and that stuff so that was one bus driver another bus driver like country and then on some field trips we would listen to oldies which in my head will always be music from the late 50s and all throughout the 60s and early 70s i'll be 60 years old and for me i think of oldies as that time period. right likewise yes i understand i I will never be thinking oldies radio and it's (laughs) lady gaga right (laughs) yeah Yeah, right that's yeah. never, that's, I, I can't deal with oldie stations now that they're calling Journey yeah. oldies. Because like, there's a, a vibe to oldies. I, I totally and, speak and, that language. I understand. It is, you know, solid gold era. Like, <laughs> yeah. And so I, at some point, I got a, a tape recorder for my birthday with a set of blank tapes, which I would like just record myself doing silly stuff on it, but it had a radio. And so I, I got attached to oldies and I, managed to get my hands on one of my dad's rock and roll tapes he had for like, I don't know what driving or something. Cause people had cassette players back yeah, then yeah. in their, in their cars. And it had like a ton of beach boys and a little bit of Marvin Gaye and some like great songs like Jeremiah was a bullfrog and you know, <laughs> my girl and, oh, and yeah. Johnny be good. And, and those, you know, from other various artists and, and then surf and bird, you know, bird is the word that kind of, st- it was just random stuff that these records he recorded on tape. And I just like got attached to these random songs and, I would listen to the radio and I'd hear them on the radio and freak out. And so that's why I started liking oldies radio and I got into the Beatles and, and really anything with harmonies, mm-hmm. you know, tight harmony, Simon and Garfunkel, Peter. And oh, Gordon. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, that was, that was my mm-hmm. thing back then. It was always like, how many, how many notes can they sing at once and sound good? Yeah. And <laughs> like sound not, pretty. not too many notes, but yeah. you know, so the yeah. tight harmony type of thing, uh, which has influenced my style and mixing productions you know since just even then so that was oldies and then i freaked my dad out because a couple years into that in about nine or ten i graduated a led zeppelin and uh, <laughs> pink floyd and rolling stones and heavier and stuff a little yeah. heavier stuff i i didn't really he didn't want me to listen to acdc but it's fine because i didn't really care for hard hard rock van halen acdc guns and roses i didn't care for that i just it, it didn't sound tasteful at the time for me most of it still doesn't, but some of it's fun. But it was definitely classic vinyl was my yeah. genre. And it's interesting because we're, we're going to get to the Ed Sheeran songs that you recorded, but you've taken a lot of guitar bands, right? And you've somehow miraculously made them approachable on the piano. We'll, we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but it's an interesting an interesting thing. I read in your bio that you traveled to New Orleans regularly for the Heritage Festival and that you began to share the stage with Harry Connick and Dr. John and so forth. Did you get to meet those guys? And, and if so, what was that like? Well, there's various different stories of events that happened. Harry Connick Jr. actually, that meeting happened at a restaurant with a couple of the hosts who really liked me. I've been going to this place called Irene's Cuisine. It's French-Italian-Creole combination so it's not italian not authentic italian definitely got but it's it's got italian influences the older lady who owns it is italian from italy but she totally adds like cajun spices and a french feel to it so it's really good um if i do say so myself and i've literally (laughs) been going there since day one of when i started day one of when i started going to new orleans that's a story in itself but a couple years into the trip one point the host said, okay, 
don't say anything, but Harry Connick Jr. is coming in with his wife and kids. Um, they haven't all been down in New Orleans for a while, like since the hurricane, like this is a big deal. And, and he, he was closing out the festival on the big stage, which has always been a dream of his, but the Neville brothers had always done it for years and years and years. But after the storm, they couldn't come down because some of them had health issues. And so they had to find other acts to fill that role for a couple of years. And Harry Connick Jr. got his dream come true on that year. And I got to go backstage and watch, which is a big deal because it's hard to do. Um, but before that, we were just going to leave. And, and they're like, no, you got to come sit at this table. You got to come sit at this table. So I did. And we were talking. And he's like, oh, why don't, we go, why don't we go back on the piano? So we went back there and both started jamming out on the same piano together. And I pull out wow. a harmonica at some point and start playing. So it's this little jam session going on in the back of the restaurant. How uh, fun the, is the that? The piano's in the back for people waiting for their tables. That was the setup of the old Irene's restaurant. So you're jamming with Harry Connick in the back of the restaurant? Do oh, I yeah. have that right? Yeah, in the, wow. in the little side room where you can get cocktails while you're waiting for your table. <laughs> and was he, was he a kind guy? Was yeah, he nice he's just super chill. He's like super chill down to earth. And, and like I said, we went back to his table afterwards and just chilled. And like the girls ordered Shirley Temples. It's like, <laughs> like, they're just like normal like everyday little girls they were i mean they're not little anymore they're like 20 and 21 or 22 something they're in their yeah early 20s young now. adults mm-hmm. yeah well that's and a fun of course story. The, wife, the wife was a victoria's secret model i don't know if you knew that i'm more you know <laughs> i i may have forgotten that i don't know and then marsha ball and dr john that happened years later at a different event i was just at this random event that this guy who was running me around the city trying to like get me famous turns out for his own <laughs> end. We, we, we I, I cut him off at some point cause he was looking for a deal, but while I had him, he did a lot and annoying guy with a mustache named Jimmy. And so <laughs> Jimmy got me everywhere and people hated him, but he got me the gig. They liked me, hated him, kind of sent him off. And then suddenly I had a friend. So Jimmy was great to have. And he got me at this gig at this museum for a benefit for Bobby Charles, who was this songwriter back in the day who wrote all these doo-wop songs like See You Later Alligator and other stuff. I had never heard of him, but there was an honorary memorial for him. And I was just playing with the house band, playing all of his music. I was literally just sitting there playing a B3 organ. And in walks Marsha Ball and sits down at the piano. And then in walks Dr. John and sits down at the piano. And I'm just doing my thing. But they're just there. And then the Marsha Ball connection actually was pretty solid. She had me play with her a couple days later in New Orleans. And then she came to Portland to have me play with her. And I've played with her a couple times ever since. Dr. John was too loaded to to really know what was going on. I'd actually met him years ago in the Portland area. But I know he didn't remember me. (laughs) Poor guy. But he could play piano and sing just fine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was quite a piano player. But I also read that when you were 16, then you discovered your soulful voice. And as a singer, a singer wannabe myself, I really appreciate your vocal artistry. And so how did you discover it? And were you surprised to find your voice so versatile? Well, that's another interesting story. I always knew I could sing. And I I knew I had a good pitch. I knew I could match pitch. I knew I could sing, but I didn't want anyone to get attached to like a boy voice that wouldn't last. So I, I was just always played shy and didn't ever want to sing when I was little and I would sing with groups. And in fact, like I'd be the loudest one in the group. Everyone could hear me, but that's how my wife is now with choir. She will belt out in choir, but she doesn't want to sing by herself. So, so she understands, but I just didn't want, I, I would just freeze up if someone tried to give me a solo. I just, I didn't want that. I never wanted to do that. So I was kind of just waiting for my voice to change. So at some point when I was 14, 14, 15 in that time frame, I would start singing at the piano at home when no one was around and just kind of figuring out how to establish control of the notes and not be too pitchy. And because I had a good ear, so I knew what to, I knew what I needed. I just couldn't always get it because I literally had no vocal training. And so I, once I felt like I was, I don't know, worth a try <laughs> at being a singer, then I decided it was it was about 16 when I started doing it solo. I was singing backing vocals with a couple of blues blues rock R&B bands beforehand, but it was literally just backup vocals, no leads. 
so I started doing vo- uh, vocals at 16. It was mostly Michael Buble ripoff. That was what I was doing at first. And then Elton John and Billy Joel and Frank Sinatra, other hits, Beatles, all the Beatles. <laughs> and I got in with a bunch of singer friends that were my age just to kind of hang out. And I kind of made my own little friend circle. And I was definitely the weak link. They all had these vocal, they had like training and choir practice and all this stuff. And I was definitely at the bottom at just kind of control and like endurance and whatnot. But over time, I started rising up and, you know, 16, sure, it had a mature-ish voice, but it, it kept getting a little stronger as time went on, not just because I was getting older, but because I was using it more. And it's like a muscle, you use it or lose it. So I would listen to myself sing on recordings and realize ah, I still got a lot of work to do, especially with blues and soul and high energy stuff. I was not the best and I knew it. And I just kept trying. And, you know, over time, I just, it just kind of came naturally more and more and more. And I had little vocal tips from coaches along the way, but no formal lessons. I've never had formal lessons. And it was right around the time of being about 22, 23, that I had my first awakening of, wow, I, I actually am not too bad. I've actually come a long way when I did a, a huge weekend up in Eastern Washington at some wineries. And there was this one day where I literally sang all day, like this, you know, all lunch, all throughout into the, you know, happy hour, it took a small break to eat dinner and went right back at it. And later that night I told the, I told people, I was like, I've been singing all day, haven't I? They're like, yeah. I was wondering, like, do you ever stop? I was like, I, wow. I kind of feel tired, but I've been going at it all day. And that was when I realized, okay, I I have this. I I can roll with this now. And I started pushing it more. realized I had to quit my instrumental job that I had playing instrumental covers, uh, which I was really good at, but I needed to move on. And so I got a five-night-a-week job, Mm -hmm. which means I had to even up my game more because I was like, well, if I'm doing this, I really have to practice. (laughs) So I had to just learn more endurance tricks and I started doing really well. And I've had two major vocal setbacks between sickness, a really bad sickness I had once. And I overdid my voice a little bit this last summer. I had to recover from it just by just backing off a bit. And I got over that. And then the allergies in this fall have been terrible. And so that almost hurt me worse. I started learning some pressure point tricks and my wife does essential oils, so I started chugging certain just natural remedies just straight out of the bottle, and that's that's helped ever since. And yeah, so I've that's good. It's it's been a it's been a long the the vocals have not been just kind of boom pick it up. You know, I actually had to try. I'm really glad that you persevered. It's actually super inspiring to me to hear your story. And I'm, I love your voice. And so I want to listen to a song that you recorded on your album three from 2018, which was named in anticipation of your baby daughter at that time. And I think this song well demonstrates your creativity, especially with someone else's tune, in this case, Ed Sheeran's, uh, his song, uh, Thinking Out Loud. You found a creative way to adapt this guitar um, tune to keyboards and piano. Um, I want to take a listen to this. I also realize I've um, forgotten to thank our sponsor, Classic Pianos. So thank you so much, Classic Pianos, for making this possible, this podcast with Mac Potts. Uh, but let's take a listen right now to Thinking Out Loud by Ed Sheeran. When your legs don't work like they used to before And I can't sweep you off of your feet Will your mouth still remember the taste of my love? Will your eyes still smile from your cheeks? And darling, I will be loving you till 17. And maybe my heart could still fall as hard at 23. Thinking about how 
cut mac you are oozing soul your lows are super duper sweet and your highs are just full of passion i i love your voice but the keyboard arrangement is quite original too what were you doing there well this whole album was a metamorphosis this originally began at the end of 2017 as a birthday present for my wife who has struggled over the years with enjoying her birthday and wanting people to know it's her birthday. I, I don't ask me why it's just always her birthday has not been her favorite day. So I, 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 and I was determined to actually give her a good memorable birthday present. I'm like, I'm going to do it. And it was therapy for me because we'd actually had a miscarriage right at the beginning of that month of November, 2017. So, and it's a first, it was our first too. So we didn't, you know, it's like when that's all, you know, you don't even have a baby to hold. So I had to keep myself busy um, just to keep myself sane. And so I thought, I'm going to record an album for her, just live piano and vocals. And I was like, it's going to be a concept album from our journey, from how we met up to that point. And I realized most of the songs were Ed Sheeran songs because that was one of her favorite artists. And I already knew about him, but she got me hooked on his kind of lesser known stuff. And so I literally did an album of Ed Sheeran music live piano and vocals with editing, but no sep, no overdubs. It was all live. And oh, wow. Yeah. So I did have edit points, punch points, but it's all live. 
And she has the only copy currently, but it's saved in my engineer's computer. And I do plan to release some stuff from it eventually, but I kind of wanted her to have it for a while just to herself. And I gave it to her on her birthday. She cried, got all emotional. It was sweet because it literally told her a perfect story of everything that had happened to that point, miscarriage and all, and using Ed Sheeran songs. And I listened to it two months later and I was like, I need to do more. I, this is not this is not the album I need to release. I need to do something else. So I started over and I didn't even use the same song list. In fact, more than half of the songs are different. I thought to take a page from the piano guys who you may know of. I was like, they do really crazy things with their piano. So I'm like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. I'm going to emulate guitars and auto harps and bass. I already was really good at this bass trick that I know you've seen me do where I mute the strings and it sounds like a bass. So I was like, well, I'll do that. And it's like drums, I'll use an artist bench that has a good hollow, uh, like solid side. Wow. You used an artist bench. Yeah. For all the drums okay. and my foot on a hard surface. Uh, all over, it's, it's it, lots of layers. I did not do this all at once, but uh, some of the tracks have are just piano. So all the piano is a grand piano. It's a shimmel. It's a concert grand. But then all the guitar tracks that sound like guitars or kind of a Steve Miller guitar sound, if you will, muted kind of feel is that that same piano with books on top of books and felt and rubber mutes and stuff from the tuning tray <laughs> on top of the yeah, strings, yeah. just yeah, muting the strings to not let them resonate fully. And some of the songs are like, you, you hear what sounds like a phasing keyboard from the 70s. That's not a phasing keyboard. That's muted strings with a phaser on it to make it sound like a 70s keyboard. And there's some of the tracks just have several layers of piano with, with no treatment. All the bass is me doing my bass trick with my hands and some extra muting to make it easier. And the drums is me using my foot and slapping the piano bench and uh, with both hands to get little extra, you know, side snare chops and, and hits. So everything you heard is a grand piano and a piano bench. And obviously those vocals, there is some saxophone and harmonica on the album. There's a doorbell. If you listen to the album on one of the songs, that was actually my engineer taking his guitar and doing a harmonic doorbell trick uh, because I had forgotten <laughs> to do it. Um, so I had to have him do it. I actually did hear that. I yeah, did hear that. That's, that's interesting. That was him. Okay. That was one his moment on the album. Uh, he tried to do a guitar solo, but we were crunched for time and he didn't have time to do a guitar solo. So enter harmonica on the blues song. It was supposed to be guitar, but he, he we couldn't get it done fast enough. And he and I are both very fussy about our perfection levels, you know, and so it, it was just, it wasn't, it wasn't going to work. So, but other than that, it's, it's all me. And there's a couple surprises on the album. There is a vocalist, Haley Johnson from the Portland area, who's starting to become famous singing on one song, make it rain and a alternate take of perfect on the bonus version. And then the real bonus is my wife singing on the, the final listed CD track, which is where we land before the bonus ones. And it, it she didn't want credit on this song. So it's in the, the liner notes. So you hear this cute little singer on this song. It's her when she was 37 weeks pregnant. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's, it's, it's a crazy album. It's a crazy story. It took a long time to record it. I was learning a lot in the process. My engineer was learning a lot. Yeah, we got to get the word out of how what you did behind the scenes there. That's so, so purist in, a, in so many ways and so creative and fresh. I'm not opposed um, to looping. Yeah. Shape of You is a bunch of loops no, sure. over and over of copy and pasting loops. I, I'm not opposed to modern technology. I, I won't play. I'm not no, going to play the same riff. 64 times. I'm going to loop it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, t I totally get that. But still, the whole creative process of saying, how can I get these sounds? And then taking the vision that you have in your mind and then finding a natural, creative way to do that. And then on top of that, your engineer getting the right sound to translate to audio. That, that's yeah. he, he did some of the work. It was mostly telling me, telling him what to do. But I have done this before. So, I, I mean, I could be a sound engineer if I wasn't blind. I should be a mixing critic because I, I judge other people's mixes going, really? 
that's way too much frequencies here. Like, come on, are you deaf or are you, or were you on substances? Like, this is not a good mix. You know? yeah, yeah. I should have been a critic. I could still, I could still try that. <laughs> I, I, let's stay with the artist route. Um, that's working for you, Mac. Um, so switching directions, I saw your cut media video online called blind people tell you, um, tell us which questions annoy them the most. I really like your candor and how you freely talk about you know, people's reluctance to discuss your blindness openly, or as you call it, the elephant in the room. I think for those of us who can see, we marvel at how much blind people can achieve without their sight. So we can't actually imagine what it's like without seeing. So I'm going to ask you what may seem like a stupid question. Um, in your words on your piano tuning website, blackandwhitepianotuning.com, you say your, your own vision level is zip, zilch, nada. Those are your words. And so when you're playing, obviously you're feeling the keyboard, but I'm always amazed how you can play stride or you can leap large intervals without seeing the keys. Obviously, there have been a lot of great blind pianists over the years, Art Tatum, Ray Charles, Stevie Wonder, and a million others. But was there a time when you like deliberately had to come up with a system to achieve like perfect intervallic jumping, or have you just been doing it so long you can't remember? I, it's, that's hard to say. I actually don't, I actually feel like I'm, <laughs> I'm not as polished as some piano players at it. I, I'm a little messy when I go fast sometimes. I, that's why I don't, there aren't any jazz recordings of me. Crescent City Dreams is the closest you'll find at the moment because live, I make a mistake. I don't care. But in the recording, it's, it's like, I got to be perfect. And so it's really hard for me to get it right. But as far as what I can do with stride in a interval of a 12th or 13th range, if it's, you know, a little over an octave, I literally kind of just know how far to jump my hand. It's not that hard, but when I do jumps and big ones, especially the trick I learned when I was little, because Suzuki had, you know, classical music has jumps too, is use the black keys. The black keys are your friend, you know, use the twos and threes and know where the other keys are, you know, and find the notes without playing them before you even play your piece. I learned that when I was little. Find the notes without playing them because my teacher was like, well, how is he going to do that? Because, I mean, he he listen, he knows them by ear, but like at a recital, you have to find the notes without playing it. And it's called using the black keys. And so I, I know the keyboard well enough because of that. And as far as the jumps go, some of it's just intuition and luck. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. All right, I'll take that. And so another question kind of on the same same topic. Does it take time for you to adjust to different pianos? You know, the different key topographies uh, on different brands, they vary so much um, to me anyway. <laughs> but do you wrestle with that at all? Um, for big jumping, it's really no different. It, for like octaves and intervals, crappy keyboards, excuse my language, like cheap keyboards, uh, the keys are actually a little shorter in width sometimes. That will throw off my mojo. But most pianos are pretty similar. It's so minor of a variance that it's really not anything to stress about. The biggest issue is the touch. I have to, you know, I'll sit down in a piano right away and go, oh, this is a heavy touch. Uh, you know, these pieces are the way I play this with this finger and this technique is out the window because I can't play. The notes are not repeating fast enough for me to even try. Uh, or this piano is so mushy and sloppy that, like, I'm going to make mistakes because it's just way too easy to play, which t I try not to warm up or play those as, as little as possible. I, I try to avoid those because then it's just too easy and I get lazy. Yeah. Well, that's hard for any artist really to, to, to play with a piano that can't perform, you know, whether too hard or too, too light. And that's an artistic thing that we just have to deal with on the piano. Well, luckily I, I sometimes can fix that, but not in crunch time at a gig. Although I have done things like that crunch time, like this piano will not play. It's a spinet. I have 20 minutes. Let's get in there and hand tighten all the grommets just so I can get some, some throw on these notes because they will not throw forward. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Well, that is, that's awesome. I remember when I was a uh, freshman at university of Minnesota, I used to watch this guy, Bruce McCabe, who played with a band called the hoop snakes every Wednesday night. And unfortunately he passed away a while ago, but he would always have the piano wide open when he was playing and he would mic it that way. And he would always have his tuning hammer and always have his 
gear handy, has equipment, and he was making tweaks all all the time. I, I've tuned I've tuned at gigs before. I try to avoid it, but there's there's some times where uh, if if I tuned the piano before the show and we don't have suddenly a weather front come in in the middle of the day, which can happen literally within one day, it, it can go if it's that bad that fast. But typically not. That's that's weird and rare. But typically, if I tune it, it won't move. But if I didn't tune it, and I'm playing it rocking out really hard, sometimes something will will get, will jump, and I'm like, uh, I have to fix that. Yeah, it's like a guitar going out of tune, and no one's gonna adjust it. You know, it's yeah, it's like ah. it's, it's like you know, you don't stabilize it to start with. Yep. Good luck. <laughs> yep. So now I'm gonna make a character assessment here. I was reading your three play media interview, and to me you made some amazing statements. Uh, when you were asked what you were passionate about, you said you're passionate about making others happy with your music and that you play for other people's enjoyment. When you were asked about the worst thing about being blind, you said it was not being able to be useful in a situation when you otherwise could have been able to help. When you were asked about your proudest moments, you said becoming a dad and experiencing your wife, Haley, becoming a mom. So honestly, I thought those were statements that were amazingly generous and selfless. I, I don't have any questions to this end at all. I'm just saying I think it's remarkable. I would encourage listeners to read that interview online because you said some pretty profound things, which I don't have time to discuss here, but I'll post a link for that interview in the show notes. I was moved what you said about how being blind affects you. Um, so again, everyone, please check out the link for the three play media interview that I will post in the show notes. Okay, let's talk about another elephant in the room, uh, your American Idol experience. Oh, yeah, great. You could do the condensed version. <laughs> yeah, we don't have we, to We can try. Here. No, it's fine. It's just there's so much to it. It's uh, Yeah, we can try. We'll try for the short story. Yeah, just do, do your best. I think it's interesting. And I, I had an observation right. I wanted to ask you about. And maybe, maybe I'll ask you about my observation first, and then you can tell me about the story. That might be the easiest. That might, yeah, let's try Okay. That. So you got this call and you went to Idaho, Coeur d'Alene, and you did the pre-Hollywood week uh, audition, for lack of a better phrase. And Lionel Richie, as I understood it, said you should use the full range of your voice and really kind of go for it vocally, right? Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, he. I, I did something that definitely used a good portion of my range, but he's like, do you have any low range? Because the way you talk, that's not the voice I expected out of you. And essentially that's what he said. And so that's why I was saying, I said, well, I can sing this Disney song for you. It's actually what I sang to Aria when she was, that's my baby's name. Uh, uh, that's what I sang on her first day of life. And so I sang a little bit and they're like, well, that's completely different. And then they're like, well, I mean, do you have journey? Like, like, or what's your highest note? And I said, living in a lonely world. I sang, I sang that. And he's like, okay, Steve Perry, we get the idea. Yeah. So I, I gave him what he asked for. He he wanted that. And that's exactly what I did. He was definitely the hardest one on me, but then he ended up giving me a hell yes or a definite yes or something like that to, to the point of like more enthusiasm than the others. Yeah. So it, it was interesting because I thought he was going to give me a no, but the other two had given me yeses. So it didn't matter. He had nothing to say, but. But, but then you got to Hollywood and it was this gut wrenching, weak, but at the same time, super exhilarating. I understand. But in the end, basically he was encouraging, but he said he wasn't going to advance you, but he said, you don't have to put it all in one song, right? Wasn't that the essence of it, that you don't have to throw all of your, your tools in the one song? That's sort of, he, he kind of implied that there are some things that I know now uh, that I didn't know up to this interview. So Watching the show, there are only a couple shots of me. If you watch all the shows and all the previews, there are a few. There aren't any musical performances. There's a couple of, of glints that are definitely me. Uh, there was a shot of my wife during one of the things. They actually asked her a question. They showed this moment where they're looking for, it's like, where's Juan Pablo? And they, they asked, do you, do you know where he went? She's I don't know. <laughs> it was a can little cameo for her. Uh, it was funny. She's like, she posts, that's me on her Instagram. It was really funny. but. Um, I do know this, that in the end, they were showing who, like in the side room of who they might want to eliminate and who they might want to carry through. And it showed Lionel Richie and it showed him have a list. And he's like, I don't know. I, 
he kind of essentially said, shaking his head like, no, 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 don't let him go. And it showed a side shot of someone that looked like me. According to what I think, he didn't want me to let me go. And it's really not the judge's choice at that point. The producers and people who are doing the interviews, they're kind of like, kind of convincing them, like, this is what you may know about this guy. This is what we may know. Kind of how to advance them. Because I got standing ovations on my two biggest performances, and I got a, a decent comment, uh, compliments on my uh, group performance, which was average for at best for all of us, not just me. But I got ovations from all the judges, so I know that he didn't want to let me go. But as a piece of advice, he did say, well, you, you are a storyteller. Perhaps even if you only have a minute, you don't always have to show your full range of notes, which I was always tasteful, but I would make sure to put some low and high in all of my performances because that's what I do. And so he said, well, you don't always have to do that. And he's like, you know, rock the experience, ride the ride as long as you can, you know, in your community. And he's like, try again next year. And I told him, well, I, I can't, I'm, I'm, I'll be 28 and my birthday is the cutoff or my birthday is it's the cutoff. I've already looked into it. And he was, he was definitely bummed. He didn't know that. And he thought I was younger. He didn't know how old I actually was. And so he kind of felt like he let that one go. And this was before there could have been any wild card rounds or anything like that. So it wasn't the happiest for him. He was trying not to cry. Wow. And it wasn't even on camera. Yeah. He was, this was off, off duty. That's interesting. Yeah. I'm glad you got to see that whole perspective. I, I felt that in the first, in the round before that, he had said, put it all out there. And then I felt that you were maybe unjustly kept back for putting it all out there. And I thought, well, Hey, wait a minute. So I, I kind of picked up on that. Uh, but that's great. I'm glad you shared that. And so now today, Mac Potts, what inspires you musically personally? I know you love to play for others and you, and you really love to make them happy. What, what's moving you today? Today it's knowing that I guess at a time of our life that's most critical. It's knowing when to perform to my full potential, especially after my little vocal scare this last year of just having to back off. It's knowing that I like to perform to the fullest, but if people aren't listening, back off. Don't perform full voice. Don't give it all you have because you need to save it for you know, for when you know you can do that. And that's kind of my own advice that I've, I've kind of put on myself in this last year, just with knowing that I am not a robot. I am human. And if people aren't listening and connecting and getting all the joy out of it, don't give it to them full force. Be, you know, give the, give them the talent. Like obviously don't play half-assed, but, but you can back off. You know, I've learned like when to back off and when to give it my all, because in those situations where they're in it and they give it to me as much as I'm giving it to them, you know, that right now, that's what matters right now. So that's what keeps me going as well as the positive energy from other people. But I, I've kind of had to learn, like, this is my livelihood. Be careful. Because, and, and not that I'm saying I don't give it 100%, but 100% doesn't mean powerful, full range, full voice. Yeah, of the high you're going to yeah. try to connect. It's just how much physicality can you put into it night after night? I understand. That, that makes total sense. So is there anything else you'd like people to know about you that we haven't covered? Well, let's see. I'm a summer person. I like sunshine. I like lying in the sun. I like walks on the beach. It's great that you live in the Northwest. <laughs> yeah, right? Well, we do have nice summers though. Uh, we we went to Hawaii at the end of October, kind of as a baby moon for this baby on the way. And it was beautiful. I'd been there once. My wife hadn't. And it's my favorite thing. She likes winter. I like summer. So it's, we make a great team. One of us always has to cheer the other one up yeah, or calm the other one down when I'm like, oh my gosh, it's February and it's 65 degrees outside. I'm going outside. Bye, Felicia. And she's like, <laughs> Mac, 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 Mac. And, and she'll be like, oh my gosh, it's that October chill in the air and all the pumpkin spice lattes and beanies and sweatshirts. I'm like, ah, I just want my flip flops back. Exactly. I understand. So, that's random thing about me. A, ran a random thing. And how can people find out more about you? Well, I have an Instagram and a Facebook page at Mac Potts Music. That's M-A-C-P-O-T-T-S Music. You can follow me on both of those pages. I try to post 
from time to time. I'm very busy. My wife does a lot of the managing of especially the visual posts on those. But there's a lot of entertaining things on my Instagram, especially. And uh, you can check me out on YouTube. I do have my own channel, which I need to get more videos up on whenever I can. But I have other channels that I'm a part of. And just YouTube MacPot, there's so much stuff on there. Some of it's absolutely terrible quality. Some of it's me being an idiot when I was 15, 16 beatboxing and just acting like a goofball. It's I can't get it taken down, so it's just there forever. Slightly embarrassed, but it's fun. Good memories. And of course, the cut media videos. The kids describe color to a blind person. Blind people answer annoying questions. Yeah, they're great. those are wonderful videos. Blind people's worst fears. If you could, if you would want to ever get your vision back, if it's ever possible, would you do it? Like all these different ones they ever did. And then there's a throwback video from Cut that's on there from about a you know a year after the the colors video. That's just kind of them checking up on me again. So there's a lot there uh, for me on Cut Media. You can check it out. You've gotten millions, like I don't know, over 10 million views on on one views of those views on this colors video. Yeah, yeah that, that kind of helped explode my Instagram, which I'd kind of given up on, and is boom, Instagram like thousand more followers. Oh, I actually have to keep up with this now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm so glad you could join me for this and, and join us. I would love to give more exposure to you. And I hope that our listeners will check you out more online. So I want to thank everyone also for tuning in and listening to this episode with Mac Pods. I want to thank Classic Pianos again for sponsoring these podcasts and making them possible. If you want to hear more Piano Whisperer episodes, you can go to pianowhisperer.org and they also are available on most of the major platforms for podcast listening. So thanks very much again. I'm so grateful for our time together. See you next time. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And thanks again to our sponsor, Classic Pianos, who makes these ongoing podcasts possible. To learn more about Piano Whisperer and to hear earlier broadcasts, please visit pianowhisperer.org. We would be grateful if you would take a minute to rate and review us on whatever platform you use, Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Podbeam, and TuneIn. See you next time.